This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Our guest consists of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Former chair of the Federal Reserve, Janet Yellen. I mean, I don't think either of us ever expected that we would live through a financial crisis. Or even the head of the Digital India Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome back to Behind the Markets. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. We're going to be talking with Lori Wax, a partner at Springboard Growth Capital. Uh, Springboard is a investment partnership supporting visionary entrepreneurs, companies positioned to be market leaders from their website. Lori, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, it's absolutely my pleasure. Discussion is not tied to the offer of investment products. It is not an endorsement recommendation of any company, security, or investment strategy. The views of our guests are their own and not those of Wizard Ships affiliates. Tell us a little bit about yourself, how you came to Springboard Growth Capital. What was your, your history before, before coming there? Yeah, it's an interesting trajectory. And I started my career, I went to Wharton undergrad. So we'll give that nice shout out. I know I have a fellow alum here. And I started at Goldman Sachs in equity risk arbitrage up in New York. And I did a two year training program there. And when I concluded that for personal reasons, I moved back to Philadelphia. And I went to work at one of the largest asset management firms here, Delaware Investments, which is subsequently been acquired by Macquarie. And I went to work in the small mid-cap growth group. I always focused on the consumer sector. There was a period of time where the portfolio manager said, you know, you really should rotate around if you ever really want to become, you know, a main lead portfolio manager. And I tried that, but I realized that my passion was really in the consumer space. So I subsequently spent 17 years at Delaware, and I worked my way up from junior analyst to analyst. And ultimately, my last 10 years there, I was a portfolio manager involved in overseeing the assets in the consumer space, always in small and mid-cap growth. And so we oversaw upwards of you know, $4 billion, you know, depending on where we were in the market. And you know, after 17 years there, I started a hedge fund with two of the other senior most colleagues of mine at Delaware. Again, it was a fund that focused on consumer, which is where I was, energy and industrials as well. And in my five years at the hedge fund, it was a very interesting time in the consumer space. It was really when dot-com was coming of age and a lot of the older legacy companies were doing soul searching in terms of how they would kind of compete in the next era. And it started to become increasingly clear to me that the exciting growth companies and the visionary founders were really spending a lot more time in the private markets. They were spending more time before they went public, and there just really wasn't a pipeline for the companies to go public yet. They just weren't seasoned enough. So I made a pretty deliberate decision that as I was relocating now after my 25-year detour through Philly back to New York, that I wanted to shift into the private space. Well, it's always great uh, on Wharton Radio to have another Wharton Wharton, uh classmate and um no it's good to get people from it's, it's everybody leaves philly to go to new york now you're, you're you're back there 
Um, you know, it's, it's interesting to follow that career. And when you, it's, tell us about how Springboard Growth came together. So as what, what you guys are focusing on, uh, talk about your, your, your group here. It's, it is a very interesting story, and I just love how it's a tale that we never know in life who we're sitting next to, who we're going to cross paths with. And so, as I mentioned, I made the decision when I was moving back to New York um, about three, four years ago that I did want to make this shift. And I was doing a lot of outreach and um, informational interviews. And there is certainly a, um, a big thought in the private equity space that it's driven by relationships and you really need to have been doing it for a long period of time. And, you know, certainly my many years in the consumer space had a lot of relationships, but, you know, it was somewhat through a different lens. And so one of the people I was interviewing at one of the large banks and my brother, who has a fun claim to fame, he was the first analyst ever at Blackstone. I was talking to him about it and, and, and another Wharton alum, by the way. And he said, you know, you really should speak to Amy Wildstein, who was somebody that he had hired early on at Blackstone. He said she was at that bank. And when she was in that private equity group, there really weren't very many women at all. But I'm sure it's changed. And I said, well, that's sweet that you think it's changed. No, there still are very few women. Sure. Let me speak to her, see what her experience was like. And you know, he quickly connected me with her and I saw that she was at a company, Springboard Growth Capital. And it just rang a bell. And I said, oh my gosh, I know someone at Springboard. And we were, I said, do you work with Kay Koplovitz? And she said, yes, Kay's actually my partner here. And Kay, I had met many years ago. She's a visionary to the extreme. She founded USA Networks at just with her belief and understanding that satellite technology was going to change the TV world and that cable was going to be coming of age. And she started USA Networks and invented the dual um, revenue stream that cable operators still utilize to this day. So Kay had sold that in the late 90s and was just really taken aback at the lack of access to institutional funding that female entrepreneurs were facing. So she started an organization, Springboard Enterprises, and that is in its 20th year now. And it was for earlier stage um, female entrepreneurs to not just learn the lingo of how to go out and raise money for a particular deal. It was really to create an ecosystem for them. And yes, part of it was to put them through a boot camp and you know, learn the rigors of what would go into raising multiple rounds and becoming big companies. But it was also um, providing human capital. So now there are 5,000 mentors and coaches around the world, which is where Springboard Enterprises has its footprint. And it's been a tremendous success. Again, 20 years later, over 200 companies have gone through. They've raised over $10 billion. There have been 200 exits and 20 IPOs. Our favorite um, little tidbit is that according to PitchBook data, of all of the female-led companies that raised money over the past few years, 15% of them were Springboard Enterprise alums. So it's really had a dramatic um, imprint on the female entrepreneurial ecosystem. And so about five or so years ago, some real superstars were bubbling up out of that system. And they went to Kay and said, gosh, we would love for you to invest in our companies in these later stages. You've really helped change the face of early investing in female-led companies. But when we get up to these Series C rounds and their $20 million up raises, it's all men in the room again. And we'd love for you to be able to participate. So Amy um, Wildstein, 
had worked with Kay Koplovitz over the years on Springboard Enterprises, and they put together, you know, a pretty innovative model, which because they didn't want to go out and raise a first-time fund, which might not have given them the scale to be able to participate in these later stage rounds, they said, how about if instead we structure it so that each one on a deal-by-deal basis we're raising money for and we're going out to our networks and for each deal, we'll be able to participate as if we're a growth stage fund. And they started that with the real real was the first investment, and that ended up going public uh, just last year. So it was about three years from the time they made their first investment. Another company that came out of Springboard Enterprises is ClassPass, which is the largest aggregator of boutique fitness um, inventory. And so with those two companies that had completely been born and bred in the Springboard ecosystem, then word starts to get out that if you're a female entrepreneur and you're looking to raise equity, Springboard Growth Capital is a great source to go to. And that is really what launched the business. Wow. I mean, there's so much there. I mean, it's a, it's a fascinating story and, and really an innovative structure. I mean, you do hear uh, for sure you're, how you started in the consumer business that so many companies are staying private longer. And as it, you know, public equity investors, people are missing out on a lot of the growth and how do they get access earlier. So, you know, and a lot of people don't have the sort of big checks that you would have to get in into these private equity deals. So it's interesting you're trying to carve up deal by deal for people to invest. And more than that, just driven from the place from which we're coming, that we are only investing in female-led companies. And so all of our companies happen to have been female-founded. It's not an absolute requirement, but they do have to have significant female leadership with an equity stake that would be commensurate with that type of leadership. And so following, they're excited to have our participation and hand-in-hand with that, we we certainly welcome LPs of um, you know all sizes and stripes, but we are really excited to off to be able to democratize access to this asset class to women in particular, because as we know, there's been a you know 79 cents on the dollar pay gap that compounds over time, and to your point, they don't necessarily have the seven figure end up checks, or um, you know, may not want to put that into one fund. So we've really found a lot of success for people that have not invested in private equity before. We certainly have plenty that have as well um, because they do like the access on a deal-by-deal basis. And our fees are also kind of a hybrid. We're not charging two and 20. We're, we're half of that. We're about one in 10. And a portion of that of the carry goes back to funding um, and help support Springboard Enterprises, you know, the nonprofit, which helps the female entrepreneurial ecosystem. Very interesting. Um, so as you think about just that trend in the types of investments you're making, how do you think about um, what's happening this year with all the pandemic and shutdown? How's that changing any investment theses or or as you see people trying to raise capital, how's it changed what you guys have been focusing on? It's certainly been very interesting because there's no doubt in the public equities for the years that I spent, things get painted with a very broad brush and you don't have granular access to understand what's really going on behind the scenes as we do in the private equity space. So we're seeing very different things and, and you know, certainly in speaking with colleagues, companies are being put into different buckets. There are some that are really thriving in this kind of environment. And we certainly know the high profile ones like a Zoom or a Peloton, but 
you know, for instance, one of our portfolio companies is Hint Water, and it was well positioned because it had a strong online component going into the pandemic. So consumers were able to, you know, not miss their subscriptions with, you know, a, a good chunk of their business coming from that. And people are certainly buying and stocking up on water. And this is the kind of water that drinks like water. And so, you know, they've done really well. A company of ours that's been public about having a, a difficult go at it is ClassPass. And, you know, very strong company. They raised close to $300 million at the end of last year with kind of best of breed, El Catterton and Apex. But clearly it's difficult to operate a boutique fitness company in this COVID world. And so they have said, and they were really going on to, as I described, world domination. You know, they had, they were already in Southeast Asia and making inroads in Europe and, um, you know, in Australia. So it really was developing a very strong um, worldwide leadership. And I think they said over 90% of their revenues evaporated in 10 days. So, you know, you were seeing the types of risks that we really ha didn't have to think about pricing in. I think that those types of risks will certainly be on people's minds as they go to price future rounds. And it's just something you need to keep in mind. And, you know, we learn these lessons at various points of our career trajectories. And as I mentioned, I started at Goldman in equity risk arbitrage. And I remember my boss at the time you know, explaining to me that you always have to price in a couple of percent that the world falls apart. And I always did it because he taught me and he was brilliant, but I never fully understood it until now. And it's, you know, yeah. really, I'm like, oh, that's what Eric was talking about. So I do think that we will see some repricings just from the standpoint of it's a risk to many businesses that hadn't really been factored in before. No, the class pass is, is fascinating. We're doing a, um, you know, we, we tend to do a, a weekly yoga class and now it's all on Zoom and and she's actually still been able to operate. It's, it's amazing how it's just transforming permanently. Like she only would have served her little community in, in Margate, New Jersey. You had to be there. And now, um, you know, it's really opening to the world. We have people coming in from London doing it, people all around. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting how you can sometimes made tougher, but for somebody whose revenue is down 90%, I mean, it's a really tough, uh, tough model there. There will be some streaming fitness superstars that come out of this, no question about it. And I don't know if you just saw yesterday, it was announced that Lululemon is acquiring Mirror. So, you know, certainly giving further validation to the ability to really bring the class into the home. Yeah, is your, is, what is your thing, is it, and, and the market seemed to like it today. Um, you know, is it, is it a sense on, that they, they think they're going to be able to sell more clothes from just people buying the mirror? Do you think it's going to be just a better way of selling the mirror? What, what do you think is, is happening on, on, that, on that thesis? So I think from the beginning, Lululemon has really been a company about community. And, you know, a lot of companies talk about it. They really, really did, you know, fully believe in it. And I think when you get, or a company and you get to a certain size, it's difficult to implement it at scale. And I think this enables them to kind of go back to those early days and develop a more intimate relationship. So really interesting, um, you know, clearly from Mirror's standpoint, it should be exponential just to the extent, you know, before you often want to plunk down that amount of money, it would be nice to touch and feel it. And I think that Mirror only had a couple of locations beforehand. So certainly should, um, you know, grow that business to a large extent as well. Interesting. 
when you go back to the types of companies Springboard is looking to invest, so the, the female entrepreneur, female-led type business, what in terms of other characteristics or fundamentals that, that you're looking for, how, how would you describe the investing approach of what you're, you're trying to provide access to? Right. So it's all consumer focused and that can take de- several different um, forms. So certainly we look at digitally native brands. We're looking at marketplaces and kind of tech enabled services. And, you know, other than that, it's still with high return growth equity financings. We focus on risk mitigation. And again, that can take several different versions. Generally speaking, we're looking to invest in a senior preferred security. Um, you know, certainly looking for companies that can be market leaders and, um, you know, where there's kind of a, a nice white space opportunity. And, and is there a reason behind sort of going for senior preferred as you, as you think about people who are, are sort of normally traditional, just public equity market investors, as, as you guys think about being these earlier stages, what are the different trade-offs you guys are thinking about there? Well, in terms of the senior preferred, because we are, again, we're not a fund. So if you're, if you don't have that seniority, but you have a pool of 10 different investments, it's diversified away a bit, but because each one is a fund of one, that's why it's really important for us to have that in place to make sure that we're as far up on the capital stack as, as we can get. And, you know, so we'll, and we'll look at the downside, um, you know, how much it can fall. So if you look at the company that's valued at, say, $300 million, and we're in the last $20 million that went in, and there's, you know, maybe 10 or $15 million on uh, in, in debt. And so it's valued $300 million. You only have $15 million ahead of you. You're in for $20 million. There's just a lot of room for that company's valuation to fall and for you to still come out whole. So, you know, it's a simplistic way of looking at it, but that's essentially why it's really important for us and how we will kind of just take a first glance view at a deal that we're looking at. Very good. Um, and in terms of the other shifting trends in consumer, like you mentioned a few, you know, the tech oriented, is is tech the... The thesis, the distribution model, is there, there a part of just the consumption trends you see longer term as, as, as being quite attractive? I mean, Hintwater, you mentioned, is, is one of the new portfolio companies. Sort of, you don't think of it as a tech company, but you know, maybe they're supporting it, you know, distributing tech-wise. How, how do you guys think about that future consumption? Right. It's interesting because you would not think about water as a leader there, but they're the leader in terms of beverage companies that are sold online. So I think it's, you know, over a third of their business and they were early pioneers in this space starting in 2013 when a lot of people said beverages will never be sold online. And these other big legacy companies were just caught so flat footed heading into this pandemic. I mean, I think Coke, about 50% of their business is done on premise. So movie theaters and sports arenas and, you know, certainly corporate cafeterias. And it's just taken such a hit. I think they said that piece of the business alone is dragging their overall business down 25%. So yes, hard to think about water as tech, but you know, there certainly was that strong element there. And, you know, all of our companies, they, they all need to be driven to a certain extent through this new frontier. And if we've seen anything in this pandemic, it's been the acceleration of these trends. And, you know, I didn't mention the year that I graduated Wharton, but I've been at this a while. And it was just early on, a lot of the retailers kind of said, 
not my core competency. I'm going to outsource this whole e-commerce thing. And we see that that didn't end well. And one by one, they had to, you know, swallow the lumps at some point and make the big infrastructure investments. And that's great that they do, but there's kind of nothing like being able to start from scratch and be, you know, a company that's going into this fully with this mindset that we're going to be digital first or we're going to be online. And Or you look at a company like The Real Real, which has completely upended the consignment business as we knew it, right? Beforehand, it was your individual kind of, you know, mom and pop company that a lot of people just didn't even feel comfortable going into. And so there's just this endless supply of untapped luxury goods in people's closets that they weren't wearing anymore, but they really didn't want to feel like selling it. And so the real real comes along and they have this white glove service and they'll come to your home and it's now you have the whole world as your potential end user. And then we get into the pandemic and one of their distribution fulfillment centers was in the hardest, was was in the most stringent county outside of San Francisco. So they weren't allowed to even tap into their goods that they had outside of San Francisco. But they said, well, what can we do about getting supply since a big moat that we've built is having these white glove ambassadors that go to your home and pick up the merchandise? And they say, how about if we try to do that virtually? And again, something this could not have happened 10 years ago. People just would not have had the bandwidth and the Zoom connections, et cetera, at home. And they have been blown away that they're getting very similar quality and quantity of merchandise through these virtual appointments as the in-person and I probably don't have to explain, it's a lot more time efficient for their ambassadors to do it that way. So again, it's companies that just continue to push the type of technology that they're looking at. And, you know, the list goes on and on in terms of what else the real real is doing in that capacity. It is fascinating how many times these stress points make you better. And we've been talking on our show that, you know, perhaps one of the trends is productivity trends become accelerated in this new world. You see how much more you can do either with less or with technology that you wouldn't have otherwise thought acceptable. So interesting to hear that on, on a real example in your portfolio companies or past companies, real, real. Uh, now, you also are a board member of one of your investments. You want to talk about your experience there and, and how and what and, and about that company a little bit? Absolutely. Sure. So one of our companies and again, speaking about kind of this next gen consumer certainly important to have clean ingredients as Hint does. And so this is a hair care company called Aquas. And they had historically been known for an iconic hair towel and turban that they, they had pioneered the performance hair towel category. You probably weren't even familiar that that existed, but the founder was, you know, actually the ski industry at the time that companies like Under Armour and Wicking Fabrics were coming of age. And she said, I think we could do that for hair. And so kind of scoured the globe and came up with a great product made out of a factory in South Korea. And she was building up a really nice business. And and so it was just known that you would cut your hair drying time by about 50%. And along the way, she was noticing and everybody was commenting that their hair was shinier and healthier and it wasn't as frizzy. And so from there came the, the kernel of the thought, huh, how about if we really understand the science of hair care and we build into that, which then takes away from just the once every however often purchase into a consumable shampoo, conditioner type of product line, but not doing a traditional way, coming from the understanding that Wet hair is weak hair, and we have to minimize the amount of time that one's hair is wet, starting with the towel, but it also developed into a 
pre-wash that you would spray into your hair before you get into the shower. And the last thing you do is shampoo your hair. And then there's an after shower conditioner. So that product line launched about a year and a half ago, was doing quite well, launched into all of the big places that you could think of with Sephora and QVC and Neiman Marcus. And they had, during this process, really, really done research with the leading university, which happens to be out of Portugal, as it relates to fiber care. And that goes back to old world caring for textiles. And they they mapped the entire hair keratin genome, and they've come up with the first line of biomimetrics for hair care. So it actually mimics the ability to regenerate keratin, which nobody else has done anything like this. And so this is a product that they test marketed it in Australia last year, started to, this is going into the salon channels, started to get some traction, and then the salons all shut down this year. So they've had to do a little bit of a pivot and do somewhat of a direct-to-consumer um, shift, but still keeping in mind that the salons will be key for their business going forward. Very, very interesting. Uh, you're right. I, I didn't know much about it. I don't have much hair or, or left, as my kids like to tell me. So <laughs> I'm probably not the direct consumer on that one, but it, but interesting to hear all, all the background there. Very interesting. But, right. And it does speak to why it's so important to have female funders out there, because to your point, we can sometimes say, okay, and we heard this on The Real Real, and the founder and CEO, Julie Wainwright, is vocal about, like, if I had a nickel for every meeting I went into and the um, male across the table said, sounds interesting, let me check with my wife or my assistant. And so, okay, we get, but like, certainly for Aquas, there's just, it would be so difficult for guys to understand how transformative what they've come out with is. And so, you know, it's really so important. We know there is, it's under 10%. It, it changes a little bit year over year, six or 7% of funding goes to female led companies. And so it's really important to have female founders, um, you know, there and for, for female funds and funding sources to be able to get in there. That's a great story and, uh, and and a great example. Any sort of as you think about who should be reaching out to you, how they can find you guys and and look to get involved, either you know as investors or people looking to raise capital. Where what's the best way to be following what Springboard is is doing and uh, and to become a part of it? Of course, that is always a, a nice opportunity to give the plug. So we do have an Instagram account that you can follow us at Springboard Growth Capital. We also have a website, um, springboardgc.com, although I think you just informed me that my title isn't on there correctly. So we'll make some quick changes to that beforehand. And so that lists our portfolio companies. And then as, as all kind of hip younger companies do, our emails are all just our first names at springboardgc.com. So I'm Lori, L-O-R-I, at springboardgc.com. And always excited to hear from, um, you know, female-led growth companies. Again, we target growth stage financing, so minimum of $10 million in revenue and looking to raise $20 million and up. But we're always excited to speak to companies earlier on in their growth trajectory and get to know them and kind of track them over time. There's, there's no better way to develop a relationship than to you know, start early on. Well, this has been great, Lori. Thanks so much for joining us. We've been talking with Lori Wax, partner at Springboard Growth Capital, about uh, their their plans and ventures. Thank you so much for joining us, Lori. Absolutely a pleasure. Thank you for having me. All right. You've been listening to Behind the Markets. Thank you for listening. Have a great week, everybody. 
Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.